Nicolas Cage is probably one of our generation's definitive actors. Welcome to Cage Fighting. It's your main man, Andy Gillard here. Hope you're all doing well out there right now. Hi, everybody. Matt Guy here. Hello. Oh, that was different. Good morning, everyone. Let's boost. Stu. Matt was channeling his inner uh, Kenneth Williams there, <laughs> I think, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm not sure what was happening there. It's been a it's been a strange old day today, um, followed by the delivery of what I can only describe as a massive fucking toilet tent. <laughs> so, so, we've, so we're um, in the guy household. We're going camping uh, next week. And we've had a, pri- a privacy tent come. But there's nothing private about it. An eight-foot tent that says, I'm shitting in massive, <laughs> massive letters, basically, on a campsite. It's basically just you're channeling carry-on camping. And it's yeah. Kenneth, Willi- yeah. Kenneth Williams is inside you. And you've got nothing to say about it. <laughs> oh, matron. <laughs> right, so we are here this week to discuss Gone in 60 Seconds from 2000. Can you believe this film is now 21 years old? Like, I mean, and before watching it, this sort of felt like it was maybe about 10 years old, not turn of the century. Mm, it's not something that I associate with... Y2J, okay, okay, that's my. There you go. It's <laughs> not something. It's not something I associate with the turn of the millennium at all, really. But it is, in actual fact. Who, who'd have thought it? I mean, it, I know exactly when it came out. Um, a story I'll mention later, but yeah, it's watching it. You can absolutely tell that it's a film from the two thousand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got that in my notes. We'll, we'll get to that. You are hundred percent accurate. I would say this is probably one of Nick Cage's best known films. Mm. So it came after a run of like properly profitable movies, Leaving Las Vegas, The Rock, Face Off, City of Angels, Snake Eyes, 8mm, Bringing Out the Dead, and then this. But the quality in that run varies, as we've discussed <laughs> on previous podcasts. But they're all films which made an impact. They're all films which are very much part of the zeitgeist. Like... This is almost the genesis of the Nick Cage that we've come to know and love, really, isn't it, I think? Yeah, for sure. I mean, once you take Conair and Faceoff out of the equation, I think most people will come to this as a comfortable third when they talk about Nick Cage films, or if this was Family Fortunes, though I can't think of whatever Randy play a part in. <laughs> um, but um, Family Feud for our American friends. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, it's one of those films because I think of the cast as well. He's, whilst he is obviously the leading man in it, um, it's just big and, bomb- and bombastic and it's one of the films he's, he's often remembered for. I mean, Matt, you've just mentioned the cast. Like, I know it's been, for me anyway, it's been at least 15 years since I've seen this film. And my only recollections were really that it was Nick Cage, Angelina Jolie, Vinnie Jones... Delroy, Lindo, and Timothy Oliphant. Like, I remembered that those guys were in it, and Gio Ribisi. Like, if you put that cast into any film for a turn of the century, like, people are going to flock to see that. That is a good cast to have, isn't it? 
Yeah, especially at that like time period as well. I don't know really Eccleston, where was he in the world at this point in terms of like where he'd been in much but at this point? He was in a film called Elizabeth when I when I looked, didn't know a massive amount of his work from, from this period. Um obviously he was Shakespearean a Shakespearean actor, so he'd been trained and I think he'd probably done more stage work than he had mm. TV work. Yeah, this is the first film I saw him in. I do feel like this might have been a role for Sean Bean. <laughs> that's, another, that's another story. Yeah, most definitely. So we're looking at 2000, up until that point, a film called Existence with a Z, Elizabeth, um, and then we're looking at British stuff like Our Friends in the North, Hearts and Minds, which I've never heard of, Cracker. <gasps> um, yeah, that, that's what we're looking at, really. Shallow Grave, which was a mm. Danny Boyle film, if I remember correctly. Um, that was probably his biggest role from what I remember, but that was very much a British indie film. So on the world scale, you know, he's a million miles off from Doctor Who at this point. When was the, what was the one that he played Jesus in Manchester? Oh, it rings a bell, but for the life of me, I can't quite place it. Um, right, so he joined Doctor Who in 2005. Bible Mysteries. He played the narrator. The Second Coming. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. So the director on this film is Dominic Cena, I think. S-E-N-A. Um, I'd never heard this name before. And when I looked into him a little bit further, he was a music video director up until 1993 when he did a film called California with a K starring David Duchovny. I remember the image of it, but I don't think I ever saw it. He then went on and did Gone in 60 Seconds, Swordfish, 13 Graves, White House, sorry, White Out, sorry, and a film which we'll be looking at in the future, Season of the Witch. So, like, he's mostly done stinkers. (laughs) Oh, come on now. What is that? White Out with Kate Beckinsale? I don't know. I'd never heard of it before. Uh, it, it very well may be. Because that's that's not that bad. I remember watching that for some for some reason. If it is the same one, right? I'll have a quick. Yeah, it is. White Out, Kate Beckinsale, two thousand and nine. I mean, it's got a five and a half on IMDb. That doesn't necessarily mean it's good or bad, but it means it's mostly not great. Um, it, it's not one I'm aware of, so. But yeah, like looking at most of his films, they're not brilliant. So like my memory of this film, because I know that the three of us, we've seen this film before and this is a, a repeat viewing. I remember it being fun, high octane race, for want of a better word. Obviously, I know it's a pun, but I, I remember it being really light and fun. So I was looking forward to this. And then when I saw who the director was and his history, I thought this film may not hold up. I can't quite. Couldn't quite put my finger on it. <laughs> Before, I mean, this was one of the ones that I, I was waiting for us to get to, just because it's nonsensey. <laughs> I know we're going to get there, um, but yeah, I, I remember what, I watched it when it came out. I had, I watched it on video. I bought it on DVD as well. Um, yeah, but again, like you, I probably haven't seen it for fifteen years or so for whatever reason. But yeah, at the time, I just I adored this film. Being a being a kind of a lover of car films anyway and, and car culture, even though I'm the, the one who doesn't drive, weirdly <laughs> enough. Um, yeah, this is right on my street straight away. Matt, 
what was your opinions or, or hopes when we said you were going to be doing this film? Well, Andy, I'm glad you asked because <laughs> um, <laughs> I see this as the um, the amuse bouche to the saga that will be me finally watching the Fast and Furious films. <laughs> so I very much see this as the you know the inspiration for it. I think it was the first one, 2005, was it? I think. No, it's the year later. 2001. 2001. Oh Christ! Yeah. I must have must have misread that. So this is obviously a do- and from what I remember of the first Fast and Furious because I have seen about half an hour of it. I did think, oh, this is a carbon copy of this. But then what I also remembered about Con Air, Con Air, fucking hell, Gone in 60 Seconds was this is a bloody rip off of Need for Speed Most Wanted. <laughs> <laughs> or no, it's like it feels the same. Um, obviously, it's be the way around now. Um, I, I think I kind of expected the same, really, of it to be. Kind of high octane, very um, cars on steroids. It being, um, I I didn't remember it for its heistness. Mm. I thought it was more car racing for some reason. But again, it, we were getting into like 13, 14, 15 years since I saw it last. Yeah. Obviously, it's a remake of a 1974 movie of the same name. I know Stu's seen it. Have you seen the original Mass? No, no, I wouldn't have, no. Stu, tell us about the original because it, it, this is something I'd completely forgot about until I was reading about it yesterday. What what was the original like? It was very much a product of its time. I mean, I've, I've I mean that's I haven't seen that for probably thirty odd years. Um, mm. I mean, weirdly enough, I got through, into all this castle through my nan of all people, because um, she was a big Steve McQueen fan, so watching things like Bullet and stuff like that, and obviously Great Escape with a Bike and everything. Um, so all these kind of action films was through her, so watching them with her and then watching them with Grandad as well. And it's in the original, it's the same kind of premise, Nick Cars and whatever, but it's obviously very much a product of its time. I don't think it'll work now. It'd look stonky as hell, but yeah, it's... It's almost like, like I said when we, we mentioned it the other day, similar to Robocop, where the premise is the same, the characters, some characters are the same in a way, but it's not really the same film. Mm. Okay. So IMDb describes this film as a retired master car thief must come back to the industry to steal 50 cars with his crew in one night to save his brother's life. Time it took you to buy your ticket. minutes. Time it took you to get your popcorn. 2.5 minutes. Time it took them. Let's go, let's go, go. To steal your car. Hello, ladies. 60 seconds. A day to shop, a day to prep. Surprise attack. Nice. Little trick I learned in the car thief retirement home. By the time the first car's reported stolen, your ship sets sail. We do this, we do it my way. I was a sucker for a redhead. You 
my friend. <laughs> 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 Okay, let's run. Gone in 60 seconds. What do you think is more exciting? Having sex? Or stealing cars? The film begins with Kip Rains, and that is Gio Rabisi. He's stealing a Porsche Cabrera from a showroom. He gets back to his safe house. Unbeknownst to him, he has been tracked by the police. Kip and his associates manage to escape on foot from the law. However, they leave behind 20-odd cars, which he'd been stealing to order for the local mobster, Raymond Kalitri, the carpenter. Seeing the high-end stolen car storage, detectives Castlebeck and Drycroft, which is Delroy Lindo and Timothy Oliphant, they open an investigation into what is happening. Cut to one of Kip's criminal associates rocking up to Nick Cage. He's Memphis Reigns, reformed car thief, telling him that his younger brother is in trouble with Kalitri, having failed to deliver 50 cars and getting the police's attention. Memphis returns to LA to help his brother. He goes to see the Ninth Doctor, Raymond Kalitri. Turns out his nickname is The Carpenter because he's actually a carpenter. Nothing to do with the way he kills people who cross him. <laughs> like, I thought that was a bit shit. Like, I wanted him to be a carpenter mm. because he would make a stake that he would drive through someone's heart because he's a mob boss, not that he makes fucking seats. Well, we learnt really early with the opening credits, the opening scene, that this film thinks its viewers have the mental capacity of a five-year-old because <laughs> all it does for what felt like the longest opening credits in history will show you time and time and time again that these are shady characters you're dealing with and you must understand that these are bad people and you must understand that they are degenerates because it's just it's just shot after shot of booze or fucking lockpicks or spanners and it just goes on and on. I'm like, oh, we get it. <laughs> yeah. They fucking wear leather jackets for Christ's sake. Like, just fuck, get on with it. Like, no wonder it's got a two, it's got a two hour runtime for fucking no wonder. It was nearly four minutes just for that opening credits. It's like, ridiculous. Before we got to anything, I think it was about three and a half to four minutes. Ridiculous. Like, so it, it was... doesn't surprise me. Sorry, it doesn't surprise me that he's called the carpenter and he's just a carpenter. <laughs> doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, it was like a Bond opening without the song. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was just a, just a lot of really bad late nineties CGI spanners, like you just said. <laughs> but yeah, the the whole thing about how he he kind of gets aroused by wood is is all a bit weird. And then, but then he when he opens his mouth and he's a mank, you think, well, this is just why is he here? And why is it why is he got an Italian name? <laughs> he's from <laughs> Manchester and he's living in LA. That's a range tries to pay back the 10 grand which the doctor paid to Kip to steal the cars. The doctor tells him to piss off and shows him that he's made a coffin, then takes him to the scrapyard where he shows Kip is cuffed to a car that is in a crusher. Kalitri will crush Kip unless Memphis steals 50 cars in 72 hours for him. So that's 20 minutes gone at that point of the film. What did we think of the opening salvo other than it being blindingly obvious what is going on? <laughs> That's all you need. It, that, this film wears its nonsense on its sleeve from the very start. When you look at the, um, look at the, even the font, 
Even the font just screams 2000. Yeah. Mm. And the music as well. It's everything about it. It was it was really nostalgic and kind of a nice way for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but although we're talking, I mean, he's, he's henchman being so stupid as well, which is a, a classic trait of the time. Mm. Um, I've forgotten that some of the parts in this. So when it got to, when it got to him being in the in the crusher, I had I'd completely forgot that part. It was it was like watching a new film again. I was quite excited. <laughs> Matt, are you invested or disinterested? No, I mean, I really tried to approach this film with an open mind and just think like to leave my brain at the door for want of a, a better phrase. But at this point, I thought, yeah, this is fine. This is going to be one of those films. Let's just in, let's just go. Let's enjoy it for the ride, so to speak. Um, so by this point, fine. Let it let it rumble on. It wasn't. It wasn't boring me, put it that mm. way. I agree. I think that the first 20 minutes actually went quite quick. Like Quite a lot of the story unfolded quite fast. And I was surprised when I looked and it was 20 minutes. Mm. I thought it'd only been 10. So I thought that was quite a positive, decent opening, to be honest. Detectives Castlebeck and Drycoft discover that Reigns is back in town and immediately assume he's in on this car theft that they're investigating. Castlebeck tells Reigns that he's got his eye on him. Reigns goes to see his old mentor, the former manager of Kilnocky Football Club, Otto, <laughs> played by Robert Duvall. They listen to recordings of car engines racing. Duvall gets all excited, but it's his tape. He knows what he's on the yeah, tape. Why is he getting excited? <laughs> Reigns asks for in- info on Kalitri and tells Otto that he needs help saving Kip. We're full on into heist movie trope here. He's going to get the team back together. All I could picture from this is, you know, the episode of Rick and Morty when they do the heist episode mm. and everyone he meets, their first line to him is just immediately, you son of a bitch. <laughs> That's yeah, all yeah. I could imagine every time. <laughs> Rick Sanchez, you son of a bitch. Need some people for a thing, Glar. <gasps> Sanchez, you son of a bitch. I'm in. Hey, hey, Trucula! You son of a bitch. I'm in. Now, I'm not sure if the next scene was racist or sexist, so I'm just going to say it's both, to be honest. We've got a female Asian learner driver, and she's da- she's driving really dangerously, and the guy pulls her over, and he equates her driving badly to the fact that he's black and therefore can't swim because of yeah, the yeah. racial stereotypes. I thought this is a really ugly scene that it's not funny... It's a bit offensive, and I don't know what you're actually adding to anything here. He is—he actually can't swim in real life because he's in Hawaii Five-O later, um, as is Scott Kahn, obviously. Mm. So this is again like like we, we like um, money plane. <laughs> There's massive Hawaii Five-O vibes here, but this—it's a thing with him, the guy himself that he that he can't swim. So it's right. it's not a race thing at all. It's just him. It's just what I don't know how well how well known that guy is, um, really. But yeah, I've no two, idea who he is. Two things I've seen him in; it's been mentioned, mm. and he seems like a, a jolly old fellow. But it was the two thousand, so he could very well have just been racist anyway. Mm. <laughs> uh, then we find out that there are two people left on Reigns' list who he needs to try and bring onto the team, and that would be Sphinx and Sway. 
Sphinx is a mute played by Vinnie Jones, who works in a morgue. Never explained. And Sway <laughs> is a mechanic played by Angelina Jolie, who hates Reigns. She initially says no, but decides to help because it's for Kip. Did you think that the scene in the bar with the bloke who just wanted his shot at Jack Daniels was really forced? Like they tried to build this bit of tension that like there was going to be a bar fight because Nick Cage was like keeping Joe Lee from pouring the drinks. But then he was like, oh, I'm just going to pay for your drink. Bang. And then it was just the end of the scene. I was like, what the fuck's going on here? Mm. I was expecting something completely different. I think if it was in a, in a film that wasn't a PG-13, they may have done something with it. Uh, but it like it just felt so family friendly that it it was just a bit a bit toothless. Well, like showing that he's a reformed character and he's not going to get into a fight and he's going to pay for it instead. Mm. Was that just <laughs> thinking too much into it? It, it could yeah. be, but like even with the, it was almost like they was trying to initiate some sexual tension between Cage and Joe Lee, but. They were trying, but at the same time, they were failing miserably. Like, I never believed that they were maybe a thing before. I don't know. I think the whole thing just felt really out of place for the rest of the movie. I, mean, I never her, believed their relationship. Her looking like um, one of the twins in Matrix 2 as well yeah. didn't help. Which, if you'd seen it, Andy, you'd know. But you've got plenty <laughs> of time you've got over a year. Oh. It, it, it's been nearly 18 months. <laughs> <laughs> like, I found it really odd. Like, the first 20 minutes of this film flew by, but the next 10 minutes really dragged. So this is the half-hour point at this, and the, the 10 minutes between the 20 and here. Like, I thought an hour had gone at this point. <laughs> <laughs> the next half an hour of the film is ranged and his team driving around, looking at cars, making plans to steal cars, and identifying cars. 25% of this movie is literally looking at fucking cars. A quarter of this movie. Nothing happened in half an hour of this movie. (laughs) Just looking at cars. There was no plot. There was barely any dialogue. Just looking (laughs) at cars. There was one one golden scene, which I thought, when, when Cage puts on this really weird faux British accent when he's at the Ferrari dealer. Mm. Uh, I thought that was pretty fun. Like it was kind of shows. It felt really not like the character they were trying to build though, because the character they were trying to build was actually really bland and boring. But then he puts on this weird faux British accent. He's like, yes, oh, I want to be a man about town. And blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it was just like, and I thought it was like, that was actually quite good. But yeah, I mean, any, any kind of the planning sequence of a heist film is usually done in a, Montage in a montage, exactly. A snappy montage. Yeah, not a (laughs) thirty-minute montage. I mean, it 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 very much goes down to the whole thing that this film is just car porn, and for the uh, for the kind of nuts zoo lad mag generation. Mm, Yeah, I guess. As well as looking at the cars, we see that the cops have been trying to follow Reigns and his team. The Reigns brothers get chased by a group of people who wanted the job from Kalitri. So we don't even get Kalitri exerting his power or influence. Just some chumps mm. who wanted to work for him. Weird that. Yeah. Yeah. Really weird, weird that because it's not it's not like they'd brought in Kelsey Grammer, for example, <laughs> as, as as the villain and wanted like, you know, it's a big budget thing or they, they didn't have him for a lot of time. 
this the guys are nobody at this point, Eccleston. So it's like it's not like they couldn't afford to have him, so they could only have him for ten minutes. It seemed really strange that mm. they never they never built him as an actual threat ever. Yeah, really, no, no. We're now twelve hours from the deadline, and they have all fifty cars to steal. So that's when the team starts to do their work. Whilst trying to jack one car, Reigns discovers that they're being tailed by Castlebeck and Drycroft. Uh, they leave the car and go. Reigns tells his team that they have been made. The cars are dirty and to leave them all. The team regroups at Otto's place. They come up with a plan to steal the cars from the original job that Castlebeck had put into the police compound. Whilst trying to steal a car, Reigns and Sway stop to watch a couple have sex and then they initiate to have sex themselves. Like considering they're working to such a tight deadline, it was the, that whole sex scene where they're talking about carburetors and stuff as well. You think, ooh, ignition? Uh, <laughs> like it's... But no, so, no one speaks like this. Nowhere. No, no, no the script writing is shocking. <laughs> Absolutely shocking. So at this point, another half an hour has gone in the film, and again, there has been no progress. It's called Gone in 60 Seconds, but the last 60 minutes have just been looking at cars. Like, that's pre- that's all it is. That's half the film at this point. We had the, a little bit of plot at the beginning, nothing, and then a little bit of plot at the end. That's it. Castlebeck discovers the list of cars which the team are trying to steal. One of the team gets shot whilst trying to boost the car. There is only one car left to get. The one car which has eluded Reigns, a 1967 Ford Shelby GT500. As soon as Reigns gets behind the wheel, Castlebeck and Drycroft arrive. A chase ensues. I think in a film that is about cars, I just expect it a bit better. Like, the driving in this film isn't really that impressive. Like, there's no particularly great car chase scenes. Even this one, which is the main car chase at the end of the film it was a bit average other than there was one part where he reversed that was <laughs> he, got. he was reversing down the road at high speed and then jumps over a ramp I'll, I'll get to that bit in a minute because that was also bonkers <laughs> like the whole thing it just wasn't exciting and knowing that we are 12 months away from Fast and Furious which no matter what you think of that first film it was at least exciting. They managed to shoot the, the car races quite in quite an exciting manner. This didn't feel it at all. I think we are we are looking back on it now with the experience of nine Fast and Furious films though. Possibly, but at the same time, this wasn't even as exciting as the car chase at the beginning of The Rock, which was five years before this film. Oh no, no. Nowhere near. And this but is a, a film about cars. This is why this is why I don't think this film is about anything other other than car porn and just looking at nice cars. Because that's yeah. all it is. You're probably right. So this is a 15-minute car chase. The cops finally have Reigns cornered at the road he's on. There's been an accident and the road is blocked. But of course, there happens to be some Deus Ex Machina. For some reason, there is a truck with a car ramp on the back that just happens to be facing the right way. <laughs> have you never have you never played Grand Theft Auto, Ander? <laughs> it's perfectly well placed, isn't it? Like he doesn't know what is the other side of that ramp. He's on a highway or a freeway in LA 
there is every chance that the other side of that ramp is just bumper to bumper. Like that would make perfect sense. But no, it's just open road. That that was so lucky. <laughs> I hate Deus Ex Machina as a general rule of thumb. It is so cheap. And this whole film hinges on that. Didn't I didn't like. like for me the whole I know like it's because he's on the, the run, but I've played enough fucking Grand Theft Autos and Need for Speeds and that to know that if you were trying to like drive a car and steal a car by the point where he even before he gets to that ramp, you'd have failed the mission for the damage caused to the car <laughs> that you were trying to steal. And obviously I know that's played into a joke a little later on, but it just was like, oh, mm, yeah, like you do something else with this, please. Mm. Reigns manages to get to Kalitri 12 minutes after the 72 hours has expired with the Shelby banged up. We're an hour and 40 minutes into this film and we have seen the big bad for only the second time in the <laughs> We saw him once from 13 minutes to 16 minutes and now from 100 minutes to 107 minutes. 10 minutes screen time for the big bad villain of the film. That is piss poor. Look, why why are we supposed to feel for for Kip Reigns? Why why are we supposed to think his life is in danger when we spent no time with a guy who wants to kill him? I I don't get that. It's just... um, Well, again, just just like Stu said, it, it, it... It's inconvenient that they've got to have a bad guys and good guys because it gets in the way of them shooting the cars, I guess. Kalitri and Reigns fight and Detective Castlebeck arrives. When Kalitri manages to corner the detective, he threatens to kill him. Reigns comes out of nowhere and pushes Kalitri from the top of the building. Sphinx talks, the end. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the, the whole film in a nutshell. Like I feel like it went really quick, but there was... There was no real plot points to it other than what has been mentioned. We, I don't know, just a bit shit, I thought. <laughs> so the budget was an estimated $90 million. Ooh. Yeah. Box office in the US alone was $101 million. Worldwide was $237 million in total. Proof, if it is needed, that there is no correlation between quality and profitability. <laughs> well, I can believe, I can believe it though. Do you know what I mean? I can that 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 period of time with those people in, regardless of what you put out, it was going to be a success yeah. commercially. They knew the the audience was there for this kind of thing, and has shown since. It was it was the right film at the right time for that kind of thing. I mean, you've mentioned it over and over again about Need for Speed, Need for Speed Most Wanted, but this is absolutely influenced by them games. It has to be mm, totally. Um, but and you had all the FHM and Loaded and all them kind of magazines with the pullouts of cars, and I had car posters on my wall. Everyone did, <laughs> and Louise Nerding. Yeah, well, <laughs> that, that was stuck to the wall for other reasons. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but everyone had, had posters of Ferraris and all that kind of thing, and Jaguar XJ220, which was in this film as well, which I was very, very excited about. But yeah, right film at the right time for that kind of thing, and it doesn't surprise me one bit that it's got that kind of feedback. Mm. 
Gone in 60 seconds was the 15th largest worldwide box office in 2000. Uh, Mission Impossible 2 was the first with 546 million. Gladiator was in second with 460 million. Uh, 2000 was the year of the first X-Men film, which came in at ninth with 293 million. Uh, For some reason in my notes, I've not put X-Men, I've put C-Men. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, obviously wasn't paying attention. The Oscar for the best film of this year, it was battled out between Shakala, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Erin Brockovich, Traffic, and the award-winning one was Gladiator. That feels like quite an underwhelming Oscar year, to be honest. Okay, but there's nothing there which I think is outstanding. Uh, And also 2000 was the year which we also got The Family Man, which we're yet to do. Um, I have seen that one. I I remember enjoying it, but I also remembered enjoying this, so take that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Obviously, before I give you the scores, what do you think... Out of 10 or out of 100, what do you think the fan and critic scores are going to be here? In 21 years on, if it's around about 773s, something like that, I'd expect. Um, just because of the passage of time and it's been it's been surpassed by what it did. And yeah, I'll, I'll say around about 73, something like that. Mm. I don't think, I, I think that, like Citizen Kane to Paddington, I think it's going to be surpassed by more superior things. So I think we're talking more kind of five, six, fifty to sixty percent mm. on, on the on the scoreboards. So on the IMDb score, it's a six point five. The Metacritic is a thirty-five, but Rotten Tomatoes is the one that surprised me. So the audience score is a seventy-seven percent, and the critical score is a twenty-six percent. I West, didn't expect yeah. it to be such a big, like a 50% disparity between the critic and the audience score. I, that surprised me a little bit. Well, it's a, it's a film. It hasn't got a plot, has it? So <laughs> it, is, it doesn't really surprise me. As, a, as something nice to look at for two hours, if you're into that kind of thing, it's wonderful. But mm. if not, you can't really get, This is never going to be anything other than a Razzie, is it? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it did later on, but... Yeah, I'm not surprised by that critics hating it at all. No, I think I was more surprised at the 77 from the audience. I expected that to be quite middling. I thought it would be quite divisive, but an almost 8 out of 10 is quite a good score for a very bland film. There's more people like me than you expect. (laughs) (laughs) I possibly wonder if people had reviewed it based on their feelings of nostalgia rather Mm. than what they felt at the time, maybe. Yeah, things like um, Stop the Rock. I haven't heard that song for years. (laughs) Yeah, so 2000s. So the critical response, obviously, is mostly negative. Uh, There were some positives. Uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum from Chicago Reader. I found it more pleasurable as I time-wasted than either Mission Impossible. Nell Minow from Common Sense Media. Check your brain at the door. Enjoy with popcorn. Yep. Those are the best reviews I could find from critics. <laughs> negative. So Richard Corliss from Time magazine. In a film where we learn that it takes 800 pounds of pressure to crush a car, but only one credited screenwriter to pound out such a lame script. 
<laughs> Variety magazine reviewed it saying, dreadful in every respect. The big budget remake may well rep the Nadir of the Bruckheimer franchise, and it doesn't even rate as the most basic level of a good car chase picture. The fan response is obviously a little bit more positive. Um, however, there was one review which gave it a half a star. On <laughs> <laughs> this movie sucks due to car accidents and crashes. Stupidest action ever. <laughs> Steve H said that critics don't care if a movie is just fun. This movie is fun. Where else do you get to see a dog eating a licensee plate? <laughs> Oh, that's a point as well. We didn't even mention that. Um, like when the dog at the um, the Mercedes, the, the three Mercedes keys, and you had um, a very young Michael Penner turn up in the gang. He looks the same as, as Luis. He's exactly the same. <laughs> uh, on Amazon.com, it has a 4.7 out of 5 rating, with 93% of the reviews being a 4 or a 5 star. But... Weirdly, there weren't many reviews of any substance. I mean, one of them was reviewing Prime Video, not the actual film. (laughs) The main one I found was from XT7 Inc., who gave it a full five stars in a review titled Timeless. (laughs) 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 Love this film, even though it's 20 years old, bar the fact that the cars are old, it's still relevant and timeless. Ah, yes. Can't Stop the Rock by Apollo 440. <laughs> a classic up there with Dvorak and Beethoven. Truly timeless. I bought that CD as well. Yeah, I think I had it as well. <laughs> My favourite fan review was a five-star review from George M. Five bags, cars, cops, big-time Oscar winners, another misunderstood cage gem. They trash this movie because they can't see the popcorn connections. They see some B-grade car chase flick. I see Howard Glass from Punisher and Johnny Blaze talking. They see a bunch of bloated A-listers taking a check. I see romance. (laughs) Did you know that before Anthony Hopkins, Mike Douglas and Connery all vied for Catherine Zeta-Jones' affections, Nick Cage and Billy Bob Thornton were both trying to get with Jolie? That was before she was with Brad Pitt. When this movie was made, so many lives weren't ruined, and now they have been. So strap on for this r- thrill ride of a Cage classic. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck he was saying. <laughs> a whole fucking review. So is he saying if Angelina Jolie and Cage got together, then the world would have been a better place? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it would. Maybe if Nick Cage and Angelina Jolie got together, 9-11 wouldn't have happened. <laughs> well, who knows? You know, that that could have been the thing that brought world peace. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's my favourite. That might be my favourite review ever of anything, to be perfectly honest. So the good, the bad and the crazy. Stuart, start us off. The good, it knows knows how stupid it is. It doesn't try to be clever in any way possible. Um, And that's almost like how I remembered it, because every time I... I never once sat there and thinking I'm going to watch something intellectual here, <laughs> and I bought it knowing it was dumb, and it lives up to me. It's it hasn't got a, st- a real story, but it doesn't really matter for me because 
But you just look at the look at the poster. You look at the cover art. It's just, it's just turn of the century nonsense, and he knows exactly what it is. I mean, the, the bad, obviously, the bad is the fact that he's got no story. But is is that and the, you, for that reason, if you recommend this, you got to sound like a simpleton. And you know, <laughs> you go, oh, yeah, I like, I like cars. I like bangs. I'll go and watch Gone in sixty seconds. That's all you can say about it. Really, you can't recommend it to. Uh, if you if you recommend this to your geography teacher at school, like I did, and got laughed out of the room, <laughs> nah, that ain't happening. But um, the crazy, I mean, the crazy was the story that I hinted at earlier. That when when I was at uni, the um, the friend of the show Goldie was there, involved as well, and we all went back to my um, my ex's place at the end of in uh, Five Ways Hall, which is by Molyneux, one on the on the on the island. Mm. And um, another mate was there as well, and we'd all—I don't know why they'd all come back there, but for whatever reason, it happened. So everyone was back there. I mean, I, me, and her went to her room as you would, um, and then another mate. And you and you and you were gone in sixty seconds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, what, it's what happened. I absolutely was. Um, and another mate went with the um, with a girl that can only be—I'm not going to name her, obviously, but. Her, uh, her pseudonym was the Walking House, um, so pity, uh, pity dipped his John Wick there that night, leaving Goldie all alone in the living room area all night long, with only a copy of Gone in sixty seconds to watch. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like he it, had the best night. To be honest, he couldn't he couldn't leave because he didn't have a key to get out of the building. And he couldn't get it past security without a key. So he was stuck there until the next day. <laughs> so he's not he hasn't got fond memories of this film. I can imagine not. <laughs> That's obviously before like you could just fucking browse Facebook for seven hours or something like that, I'm guessing. Yeah. No uh was there even WAP? There might there might have been early WAP. I'm guessing there was some WAP in the uh, the building that night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speaking of our friend Goldie, he texted me the other day after the Holly Valance, Louise Nerding story all <laughs> broke last time. Um, so he said that that night was ridiculous. The house was completely freezing as no one knew how to turn the heating on. <laughs> and apparently Goldie and Stu finished two loaves of bread as toast because there was nothing else to eat. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> to watch The Rock on GMTV or whatever the fuck it was, the morning it's, at MTV. Sorry, the morning after. Yeah, because the um the, the shop there wasn't an Aldi next door like there is now. Um, in Fighting Cox, which is where the house is, um, <laughs> there was only a corner shop around the corner that opened at eight in the morning, and because we obviously there was no one supposed to be there, mm. she hadn't got any food in other than bread, so it was just toast on toast. Two loaves of bread. It's <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> oh, uh, Matt, what's your good, bad, and crazy, please? So the good was um, nothing to do with the film, I guess. In that it was the soundtrack. For the soundtrack was very much of its time, but that doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing. It was um, you. If you played this to anybody you'd know that it was firmly late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. You've got like the Cult, Moby, Chemical Brothers, Ice Cube, DMX. You know, this is, it's, and then a little, I don't, it was in the credits maybe. You had Jane's Addiction was in there as well. 
um, Groove Armada. <laughs> and it's just, <laughs> I thought the soundtrack was one of its redeeming features because it was quite fun music that they used where other films of that nature would probably have gone for like purely just heavy metal. Mm. I'm, yeah. no, I, I'm obviously a big fan of heavy metal, but it was nice to see them using something a little different in this film. It didn't feel like it was quite as the, the, the same kind of cliched, um, you know, they haven't gone to a rock nightclub where it's all goths to find out some info about some special car, like in every <laughs> film. The goths are always the wrong ones. Um, the bad for me would have been, well, I get that it is leave your brain at the door. I'm fine with that. On this rare occasion, I'm fine with that. But then it goes that one step further and it, and it, it chucks in stuff like the toilet humour with the dog. That's like, it's not, it's, it's, yeah, okay. But it's just not funny. Like, it's not funny. Mm. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't mind it, but they do try and tease like a bit of like redemption or a bit of thought only between Jolie and Cage, but they do try and build something there that is slightly more than just cars pissing about. And then in the next, in the next scene, they're feeding a dog laxatives. It just didn't, like, it just, <laughs> Yeah. You know, it wasn't... It's not that it wasn't funny. It was anti-funny. Mm. It was, like, so not funny, it was the other end of the spectrum. And the romance was so unsexy that it was off-putting. Yeah, it was like kind it did of the like... exact opposite of what it mm. wanted to do, I think, in those parts. I think it was not anti-funny. I mean, it was just out of place. It didn't really work. Mm. So it was, the, the, the rest of the film wasn't like that. No, it wasn't at all. It was that 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 was more like American Pie teen comedy than yeah. anything, and it didn't feel like a teen comedy film. Like, you know mm. what I mean? It might have been it might have been for teens, but it didn't. It, but then it, you know, where when you've got nothing else to do, do shit humor because you know, yeah, I mean, that's it, like, yeah, lowest it, common denominator. So almost almost like that American Pie came out the year before this. And they thought, oh, we're going to have to capture some of that audience. They know how massive that film was, so let's, let's mm-hmm. put in a shitting dog. <laughs> but when they had really clever things like the um, getting the uh, getting the cop to rev the engine to blow the cocaine away, that was really mm. clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no issue with that. And, you know, when we come to say whether we recommend it or not, it might shock you, it might surprise you, but it, to, to, to resort then to the that, that I mean, listen, I'm for fart gags and fucking shit gags all over the place, man. When it's in the right film, and it just didn't feel mm. like it was the right one for it. Um, the crazy for me is of all of these. Well, first of all, it's an eight eight a.m. deadline for someone that gets up at routine at five a.m. in the morning now to go to boot camp. I know, and this is we're only in April. I know that at eight a.m., if it's bright and sunny as it is there, it's not pitch black at five a.m. in the morning. <laughs> sorted out <laughs> fucking editors or wherever it is anyway my actual crazy would be with all of the you know like you mentioned Oscar Oscar winners and nominees and, and high profile actors that the best delivered line comes from Vinnie Jones in the whole film <laughs> the best actual like delivered line with the most humour the most the best timing and the most impactful comes from Vinnie Jones mm-hmm. who has one paragraph of dialogue yeah, Ridiculous. absolutely. Yeah, for myself, the good—I've got nothing, honestly. <laughs> I even managed to find something good about Left Behind. 
this film just left me feeling really empty and wanting to watch a film with just the tiniest bit of substance. This just left me really cold. It was the the film equivalent of music. Like, this could have been playing in a lift. It was <laughs> that kind of a thing. Yeah, really just disappointed. The bad, the bad guy. I'm sorry, I like Chris Freckles and I think he's such a good actor. But we see him twice through this movie. Give me a reason to fear him. Give me a reason to think that Gio Rabisi is going to die at the end of this movie. They never did that. They made out that he was the big bad guy. But the people who gave them the most trouble with some nobodies who had no bearing on the story because they weren't actually involved in it. Really poor that was. I think that they say on that he had he he himself was I saw interviews with him um when they brought this up and he hates his film. Yeah, I've got the quote here. He was quoted as saying that Gone in Sixty Seconds is a terrible film in which I give a terrible performance. <laughs> Adding that before Doctor Who, people who recognised him mostly shouted, you were in Gone in 60 Seconds, mate. You were shit. (laughs) And I had to laugh because I was. (laughs) To a lesser extent, I could say the exact same thing about Angelina Jolie. Apparently, her role was written specifically for her. And I have absolutely no reason why, because she didn't bring anything that we associate with Angelina Jolie to the table there. like. That role mm. could have been filled by absolutely anybody. It was really weak. You're thinking like Neve Campbell or someone like that at the time could have easily done that role. Anyone. Almost anybody could have walked into that role. There was nothing I saw that I particularly thought she's done a great job there, and that is only Jolie who can do that. Uh, and for me, the crazy is how much it has aged. Like this feels like the most two thousand film I've ever seen. <laughs> the cast is two thousand to a T. Angelina Jolie's the sex pot. Gia Rabisi is the screw up. Delroy Lindo is the cool cop. Scott Kahn, Timothy Oliphant, our favourite Scottish football manager Robert Duvall, and of course Vinnie Jones. It is so two thousand. Like I'm amazed this film wasn't called Stealing Cars Extreme. Car spelt spelt with a Z and extreme spelt X T R E M. Like, and I expected people to be wearing Charlotte Hornets jerseys because it was just so two thousand, like ridiculous. So, did you enjoy the film? For me, not really. I mean, that's no great surprise. It was just, it was fluff. There was no depth to the movie. It was mostly poorly acted which is a terrible thing to admit of a film that had three Oscar winners in it. Matt? <laughs> uh, yeah, I did enjoy it in a really weird way. Like, if the if the question is, like, are you recommending this film, then, then yes, in that I just, uh, yeah, I... I Whilst it was terrible, I'd gone in with the I'd gone in with the thing of like you're not going to you're not going to get anything like that, that normally would push your buttons out of this. Mm. So just enjoy it for what it is, you know. Set your standards really, really low. And I wasn't disappointed then on on this occasion. Um, there was there was just about enough, just about enough for me to go. Oh, this is you know this is okay. Like I'm, there's a nostalgia. Nostalgia massively helps. And that's got nothing to do with how good like or bad the film is. 
so maybe it's a bit unfair actually like i'm i'm enjoying the nostalgia of it probably like i'll go back and enjoy some tv shows from my youth that are actually fucking dog shit but hmm. i'll probably enjoy it nonetheless so maybe i in fact let me change my answer i enjoyed the experience of it i didn't necessarily enjoy the film right that's fair because i think i went in expecting better mm-hmm. i remember enjoying it and obviously you know i like the fast and furious films for what they are so i think i went in with that expectation whereas obviously you're very much the other end of the scale on that one so that probably helps somewhat i think mm, maybe yeah Stu. Because I did. <laughs> I, I, I sat there. I mean, I, I, I looked forward to this one for a while, like I said, and I sat there with a couple of beers. Um, no popcorn or anything this time, just a couple of beers watching it on Disney Plus as well. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's stupid. It knows it's stupid. It's aged terribly. It's not as good as Fast and Furious or a lot of things that are. It's probably not even good as the Need for Speed movie that came later with Aaron Paul, um, <laughs> which is awful. But it is what it is. It's a car showroom for two hours with Christopher Eccleston being shit and some actors that should know better. But it was still fun. So <laughs> it's it's not a good film in any way. I can't, like I said earlier, I can't really recommend it. But I, I love, I enjoy myself, and I think it's it kind of sums it up a bit that it should have gone in the crazy really. But Timothy Oliphant was supposed to be in Fast and Furious, but turned it down mm. because it was too. It was too similar, when really it's yeah. nothing like it. I couldn't imagine anyone but Vin Diesel being Dominic Toretto now, so I'm I'm glad that he turned that down. To be honest, yeah, I think the only the only thing that's similar is when there's the sit down as a family at the end, and Vinnie Jones delivers his, his masterpiece. That's mm-hmm. the only thing uh, that it's got some fast cars in it, because it's yeah. not really the same. It's a similar kind of genre, and it kind of spawned. I suppose it kick-started that whole revival of the car film back up again from because was the one in the 90s? I can't really think of one. Nothing mm. springs to mind. No, it doesn't. Mm. Right. So, based on this film and this film alone, was Nicolas Cage good or was he bad? Stu? It wasn't really about him, was it? I mean, he, he didn't really do anything. So, I mean... Probably for the first first time of doing this, I want to say, you know, he was bad because he could have been anyone. Mm. But I think that it was really the it was really the point. Yeah, he was the the so called star, but it, anyone could have played that role. So yeah, verging on the bad level for me for a change. Yeah, I've gone pretty much the same. Like I feel torn because he's not expressively bad, but he doesn't bring anything to the table. And we know at this point that we know what Cage is capable of. Big, really off-the-wall performances. And this one just was a bit nothing-y. So I've gone with bad, just more to do with this time period. We know he's capable of better. And he just he didn't bring anything to the table. So I've gone with bad as well. Yeah, I mean, all, all, that's, all, that's, as you say, all that's come from this is the kind of the finger shake meme. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's literally it, yeah. Matt, good or bad? Yeah, I've 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 gone bad. It wasn't anything massively terrible about his performance or anything like that. But again, like Stu added down to a T, he didn't bring anything of his the cageisms really that we love from him. He didn't really have to 
I mean, he didn't really have the chance to like do anything with the script he was given to to make that character flesh it out and make it more exciting. But at the end of the day, you can't you can't slag the film off for its you know poor script writing or no plot, and then give somebody then say, "Oh, but it was an excellent performance from Nick Cage. It really <laughs> captured the hearts and minds of the audience." Do you know what I mean? So it's it's just one of them. Unfortunately, it has to be bad. Mm. Totally fair. So finish the sentence. If you enjoyed, gone in 60 seconds, you may also like. Stu? The Fast and the Furious. Yeah, I mean, no more need saying, does it? (laughs) (laughs) Matt? Money plan. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, all seriousness, though. If you want to watch like a heisty movie that is so bad it's good, um, that pokes fun at itself... Uh, watch Money Plane, and you should have already if you're if you're a diehard fan of this podcast. But if you haven't, watch it because it is great, and um, and you'll probably have more of a, of a laugh watching it. Yeah, it's a better experience than this film, I think. Money Plane. Mm. For me, I've gone a little bit out of outside of the box on this one. So if you enjoyed this, watch Twenty Eight Days Later where you might actually get to see Christopher Eccleston's acting chops yeah, as a villainous fair. shitbag. That's the one thing that this film really, really could have done with, and it lacked. So, yeah, 28 days later, because you will see some good acting. And plus, I, I like any Danny Boyle film anyway. God, I bloody love that film. It's cracking. It's got to be an excuse to, to slip that film in somehow. What do you do? Yeah. Or it could be an uncaged uh, further down the line, can't it, I guess? Mm-hmm. Because I still, I never got round to watching 28 weeks later. It's okay. I've seen okay. half of it and it seemed fine, but there wasn't enough to like properly pull me into it. It's Jeremy Renner, isn't it, if I remember correctly? <laughs> sure it is. It's got a, what's his face? Oh, Christ, what's his name? What the hell's his name? Full Monty and um, Robert, Robert Carlyle. Carlyle. Robert Carlyle in it as well, yeah. Mm, I feel like Carlyle, to be fair. Yeah, maybe we should do... Um, a double head around Halloween time of 28 days and weeks later. Mm, might be an idea. Right, so that's another Nick Cage film in the books. If you've seen this one or any other film that we've ever discussed ever, drop us an email. You can send us an MP3 and let us know your thoughts. That's cagefightingpod at gmail.com. Make sure you've got us on Twitter at cagefightingpod. And this is where we'll put out all our calls for questions, polls, opinions, anything and everything. As you're listening, please make sure that you are following us on your chosen podcatcher so you don't miss an episode. Whilst you're subscribing, please leave us a review. I can't tell you how much it would mean to us if we could get a review, especially on iTunes, because every review or five star or anything that you can give us, it just helps other people find us on there, people like you. Finally, just thanks for listening. Like We we do genuinely appreciate it. We love talking shit about films and it wouldn't be half as fun if you weren't on the other end of this so for this week Stu would you like to say goodbye Uh, the snake is up my ass man goodbye (laughs) (laughs) Matt would you like to say goodbye take it easy guys stay safe it's goodbye from me and remember if he's unpleasant wounding (laughs) the rest of us Fuck that, it's too long. See you all soon and uh, take care. Yeah, that's why I don't do it because it was too long. <laughs> <laughs>
If his unpleasant wounding has in some way enlightened the rest of you, as to the grim finish below the glossy veneer of criminal life, and inspired you to change your ways, then his injuries carry with it an inherent nobility and a supreme glory. We should all be so fortunate. You say poor Toby. I say poor us.